Hello, friends. This is the Neatarts Friends Church podcast. We are Jesus people, Kingdom of God people, welcoming, yearning, sharing. And we're glad you're connecting here with us. We'd love to connect in person as well. If you're inclined to support this podcast or for more information, just hop on over to neatartsfriends.org. That's neatartsfriends.org. Let's jump into today's sermon. We're going to start out today with an exercise, and if you are listening online, it would help if you would grab a piece of paper and a pencil. Um, If you're driving or don't have access to pen and paper, uh, you can still participate. If you could receive from any three people a heartfelt apology, an expression of genuine remorse, a promise to do whatever could be done to repair the situation, if you could receive that from any three people or peoples, who would you choose? So that's the question. I want to give a few clarifications. You may say, well, how wide of a scope are we talking? Like, what if this person didn't just do one thing that hurt? What if they hurt me over and over for years? That's fine. You can make the scope as wide as you want. You can have them apologize in this exercise for something that happened in a moment or something that happened over decades. Another clarification. Uh, It can be one person or it can be a group of people. So maybe you say, the event I'm thinking of includes mom and dad. Or maybe you're thinking of an entire group of people, uh, the entire Ku Klux Klan, uh, which brings up, can you write down the names of people who are dead in this exercise? Yeah, you can write down the names of people who are dead or entire groups. What if they didn't hurt me? What if they hurt other people? That's fine. It can be deeply personal, or perhaps you're thinking of something that's very wide-reaching and deeply systemic. Choose the three apologies, the three expressions of genuine remorse, the three promises to do whatever can be done to repair the situation that you would wish for the most if you could receive that from anyone so take a moment if you have a piece of paper write down their names and uh, as i said in our worship gathering i'm not going to make you show anyone or tell anyone these names so take a moment with that
I'm going to make a guess. And my guess is that the three people whose names you wrote down have not yet given you a heartfelt apology, expressed genuine remorse. They've not done whatever could be done to repair the situation. And that's probably why you wrote their name down. Now, there might be a few exceptions, but in general, that's my guess. One of the hardest experiences to bear is the experience of wanting an apology, wanting genuine remorse, wanting repair, and not receiving it. Like, what are you supposed to do with the experience of longing for an apology and remorse and repair when there is no apology, no remorse, no repair? That experience can feel like you have been pushed through the ice on a frozen lake and you have become disoriented and you can't find your way back to the opening in the ice. And you can see the light of day through the ice, but no matter how much you pound, there's no way back through and you're drowning and you're trapped with the pain. And that's how it can feel. Like you long for the person on the other side who pushed you into this pain to break through the ice, to free you by apologizing, by expressing remorse, by repairing things. But if the person on the other side refuses to apologize and express remorse or repair things, then you can feel trapped underwater and every breath feels like pain. You see the event, you hear the words that were said, you feel the event, you may taste or smell the event, you struggle to get away from the memory of what happened. You're trapped underneath the ice crying out for release from oppression. And the longer you are underwater, breathing in all of that pain and drowning in it, the more that pain begins to convert into something even more deadly. Chronic anger and rage and bitterness and vengeance. And as you play the story in your mind over and over, your heart becomes more and more full of blame and hatred and you convert someone else's mistakes into their identity. And the more and more convinced you become that they should have to suffer like you are suffering. Biblical justice is all about delivering the oppressed. But once bitterness enters your heart, justice sounds more like punish the oppressor. It sounds more like life for life, and eye for eye, and tooth for tooth, and hand for hand, and foot for foot, and burn for burn, and wound for wound, and fracture for fracture, and bruise for bruise, show no mercy. So instead of being consumed with being freed from the icy waters of your pain, you can become consumed with seeing that other person trapped in the same icy waters. You begin to feel a secret desire, a secret glee, 
at the thought of things not going well for them. Vengeance and revenge turn into a fantasy, a preoccupation. Your mind spins with what they did to you and all the reasons that they are wrong. And you imagine them somehow paying for their deeds, suffering like you have suffered. And just like real suffocation does brain damage, Johns Hopkins University reports numerous studies that show that chronic anger and bitterness also impair your prefrontal cortex of your brain. Your limbic system becomes inflamed. You're no longer doing your best thinking. Your body is in constant fight or flight which can cause heart disease and depression and a weakened immune system. But when you've been trapped under the ice for weeks or months or years or decades, it can be hard to admit to yourself your own weakened state. On the one hand, you're only trying to catch a single breath. You feel trapped under the ice, but somehow... You swallow so much pain and somehow it converts into anger and rage and bitterness and fantasies of revenge. And now you're no longer even crying out for justice as deliverance from oppression. Your heart is crying out for a different kind of justice altogether. You want to punish the oppressor. You want to make them suffer like you suffered. The really sad and paradoxical truth is that studies actually show how unsatisfying revenge is. In revenge, people often get the opposite of what they expect. People who punish their oppressors, they, they don't tend to experience mental freedom just because they punished their oppressor. Yeah, they, they may find a way to pull their oppressor into the pain, under the ice with them, but they are still trapped underneath the ice as well. They don't move on. They're not free. They continue to ruminate on their oppressor and on the past, and they don't feel any better. So, a discussion question before we move on. We chatted in groups about this at our Sunday gathering. We live in a culture that sends many messages that say revenge and vengeance and avenging yourself will make you feel better, make you feel strong, make you heroic. Can you think of some examples of this? So take a moment and reflect on that. This brings us to our Gospel of Luke passage today. 
Luke chapter 4, verse 14 through 30. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll. He gave it to the, back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son? they asked. Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. And you'll tell me, Do here in your hometown what we've heard that you did in Capernaum. Truly I tell you, he continued, No prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you, there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land, yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath, in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up and they drove him out of the town, and they took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Why did Jesus' hometown, Nazareth, go from speaking well of him to becoming so enraged that they literally attempted an execution on the spot. Like, on the Sabbath, they were likely breaking Sabbath rules about work, dragging Jesus out of town and up to the brow of a hill. They were breaking the commandment not to murder, and they were breaking Roman law against Jewish people performing their own executions. Why did they try this? The people of Nazareth had watched Jesus grow up. Jesus had watched them grow up. Jesus, the good old hometown boy, had gone out. He'd made a name for himself in the world. Now he's back home. And apparently something that he said made them so angry they wanted to kill him. Was it something I said? It was something I said, wasn't it? <laughs> At first glance, though, it looks like everything Jesus said sounds all right, 
Sounds pretty good. He announces the year of the Lord's favor, also known as the year of Jubilee. It means the cancellation of debts every seven years. It means not charging interest on loans. It means the liberation of slaves. It means allowing the land to rest and lie fallow. It means every 50 years returning all of the land to its original distribution. And that all sounds pretty good. So what was it that Jesus said? Why did his hometown want to kill him? Well, the question requires just a little background detective work, so hang with me. So first off, we need to understand the relationship between concepts of vengeance and the year of Jubilee, the year of the Lord's favor. So going back to the year of Jubilee, and actually going just before that passage, so Leviticus 24. Leviticus 24 says, Anyone who injures their neighbor, this is verse 17, is to be injured in the same manner. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, the one who has inflicted the injury must suffer the same injury. So it's justice here is like punish the oppressor. And it goes directly, directly from that passage into Leviticus 25, which in ancient times, none of this had numbers on it. There weren't chapter divisions. So it goes directly from this passage to explain the year of Jubilee. So vengeance and Jubilee. Isaiah 61 was another passage of scripture about the year of Jubilee, and it was also very well known by people. So here's what it says. Isaiah 61, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. That is Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. Vengeance and Jubilee. If you continue reading that passage, Isaiah 61, verse 6 and 7, it goes on to describe a day when that vengeance will fall upon Israel's enemies. And it makes it very clear who Israel's enemies are. The Aramaic translation, the Targum, uh, makes it even more clear. It says, you shall eat the possessions of the Gentiles, and in their glory you shall be indulged. Instead of your being ashamed and confounded, two for one the benefits, I promise you, I will bring to you. The Gentiles will be ashamed who were boasting in their lot. So are you seeing the relationship between these concepts of vengeance and jubilee in Jewish thought. The, the longing for the day of the Lord's 
salvation was understood by most, if not all, as a longing for the day of the Lord's vengeance. The capstone of God's salvation was God's vengeance against all Gentile empires. And just like someone trapped underneath the ice, the people of Israel had a very painful history. They had centuries of genocide, enslavement, brutality, poverty, having everything near and dear and sacred stripped from them, taken from them. And their cry for justice had morphed from deliver us from oppression to punish our oppressors. Their concepts of justice had become tangled up in desires for revenge. The Hebrew prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Micah, Nahum, they all wrote explicitly about the day of the Lord's vengeance. You couldn't have a year of jubilee, a year of God's favor, unless you had a day of vengeance, because you had to take the land back. You had to take the power back from the Gentiles before you could release the debts and free the slaves and let the land lie fallow. Right? Well, notice the way that Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, read scripture to his hometown, Nazareth. So, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, edited Isaiah. He omitted one phrase entirely. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. He just omits it. He borrows another phrase from a different portion of Scripture, a beautiful portion, Isaiah 58.6, an acceptable fast. Is this not the kind of fasting I have chosen to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free, to break every yoke? And then with the final sentence, he cuts it in half. He completely deletes the part about the day of God's vengeance, the part about reducing the Gentiles to servitude, no, he just deletes that second half of the sentence, stops mid-sentence, rolls up the scroll, and he sat down. Everyone knew the way that this reading was supposed to end. This was a well-known passage of scripture. It's supposed to end, and the day of vengeance of our God. But Jesus didn't finish the lines everyone was waiting for. He just sat down. Now, in our day, when a speaker sits down, it kind of means the show's over. But in a Jewish synagogue, sitting down was the signal that the teaching is starting. So Brian Zond says this. He says, this would be kind of like someone singing the national anthem and ending with, For the land of the free. And then they just sit down. Like, everyone's waiting. They can hear it in their mind. 
and the home of the brave. What everyone can hear in their mind when Jesus sits down is, and the day of vengeance of our God. But Jesus didn't say it. So Jesus majorly got their attention. The scripture tells us the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now that word fulfilled, plerao, means to give the true or complete meaning to something, to provide the real significance of something, to show the real intent or the real purpose. This is Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, reading scripture. It sounded like possibly Jesus might be declaring a day of the Lord's favor while simultaneously omitting the day of the Lord's vengeance. It sounded to Jesus' audience like Jesus might be declaring the year of the Lord's favor not only for the people of Nazareth, but for Israel's enemies, for everybody. And that would be a deal breaker for the people of Nazareth. But it appears that initially the people of Nazareth gave Jesus the benefit of the doubt. Like, well, maybe that's not what he meant. Jesus knew the way his hometown thought. The proverb for their life was, physician, heal yourself, which is basically like, take care of yourself and your own first. And Jesus removed all doubt. He wasn't talking about simply taking care of yourself and your own. He was talking about God's favor rather than God's vengeance, God's favor extending to particularly despised people groups. And he made that clear with his next two stories. Jesus intentionally chose two stories from their own scriptures about God choosing people who were considered by society as the lowest of the low, the most excluded, the most despised, the most dirty. So he references 1 Kings 17, the prophet Elijah sent to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon, it's modern-day Lebanon. It's not Israel. Elijah was sent to a woman, first of all, to a widow, that's another strike against her, to a woman in poverty, another strike, a non-Jew, a Gentile, another strike. She's a person of the lowest of the low status in a world where honor and status determined everything. And the biggest strike, she is from the despised region of Sidon. Jesus removed all doubt regarding what he was saying. He says, I assure you, there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time, yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. Now, before they could even catch their breath, Jesus hit them with another Bible story. 
he referenced the story from 2 Kings 5, the prophet Elisha cleansing Naaman of leprosy. Now, Naaman was the general of the Syrian army, the dreaded Syrian army. So, where the first story is a widow, she's hardly a threat. She's a nobody, but she's hardly a threat. This next example, the general of the Syrian army, he's a major threat. Naaman has so many strikes against him. He's a Gentile. He's an enemy of enemies. He's a pagan. He's an unclean leper who is cleansed by Elisha. To understand how inflaming this example was, you might consider going to a synagogue in Israel today, and if someone stood up in a synagogue in Israel and they said, they suggested, hey, I think that God wants us to bring aid and healing to the generals, the leaders of Hamas, even though there's plenty of aid and healing needed right here in Israel, I think we need to, to bring the aid and the healing to the generals and the leaders of Hamas. Imagine how people might respond. And Jesus once again removed all doubt regarding what he was saying. He says, there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed. Only Naaman the Syrian. Now, <laughs> no sooner had Jesus finished saying this than the people cut his teaching short. Enraged, they got up and they drove him out of town, intending to execute him. Are you beginning to see why the people of Nazareth became so flooded, so enraged? that they tried to kill Jesus. Just like someone trapped under the ice, the people of Israel had a very painful history. Their cry for justice had morphed from deliver us from oppression into punish our oppressors. Their concepts of justice had become tangled up in desires for revenge, jubilee, and vengeance. And now... Jesus was refusing to endorse their religion of vengeance. He was including the same people they wanted to exclude and take vengeance upon. Jesus was declaring jubilee without vengeance, a jubilee that extended to Israel's enemies. And Jesus was infusing these scriptures that they knew so well with new meaning, and they hated that new meaning. They did not want a year of the Lord's favor without a day of the Lord's vengeance. And so Luke says all the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, they drove him out of the town, they took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd, and he went on his way. 
Look at how Jesus responds to his hometown trying to kill him. He didn't turn and run. He didn't flee. He didn't flinch. He didn't need people to be amazed at his teaching. He didn't argue. He didn't attack. He didn't say, how could you? He is in their presence. He's right in the middle of the crowd. And he went on his way. This is Jesus, full of the Spirit, reading scripture, teaching his hometown the real meaning of the scripture, revealing his mission, and staying true to his mission. Theologian Alan Culpepper says, The people of Jesus' hometown read the scripture as promises of God's exclusive covenant with them, a covenant that involved promises of deliverance from their oppressors. Jesus came announcing deliverance, but it was not a national deliverance, but God's promise of liberation for all the poor and oppressed, regardless of nationality, gender, or race. When the radical inclusiveness of Jesus' announcement became clear to the synagogue in Nazareth, their commitment to their own community boundaries took precedence over their joy that God had sent a prophet among them. In the end, because they were not open to the prospect of others sharing in the bounty of God's deliverance, they themselves were unable to receive it. Those who would exclude others, thereby exclude themselves. We continually struggle for a breadth of love and acceptance that more nearly approximates the breadth of God's love. The paradox of the gospel, therefore, is that the unlimited grace that it offers so scandalizes us that we are unable to receive it. Jesus could not do more for his hometown because they were not open to him. How much more might God be able to do with us if we were ready to transcend the boundaries of community and limits of love that we ourselves have erected? I close today with a short play written by the French playwright Jean Anouilly, as told by Brennan Manning. Jean imagines the righteous and the just at the gates of heaven. They are densely clustered. They're eager to march on in. They are sure of their reserved seats. They're bursting with impatience. Suddenly a rumor starts to spread through the crowd, and they begin looking at one another in disbelief. Look! He's going to forgive those others too? They gasp. They sputter. After all the trouble I went through? I can't believe it. We don't approve of a heaven that's open to every Tom, Dick, and Harry. We spurn this God who lets everyone off. We can't love a God who loves so foolishly. And exasperated, they work themselves into a fury and they start cursing God. And that was the final judgment. They judged themselves 
excommunicated themselves. Love appeared, and they refused to accept it. It isn't only the people of Nazareth trapped under the frozen ice. Sometimes it is us. And Jesus is the one who wants to show us the way through, the way to freedom, the way to reach our oppressor. He knows the way through the ice. You remember the paper, the beginning, the three names, the apologies, the remorse, the repair? If you are willing, I want to ask you to write two more names down on that paper. If you are willing, next to those three names, I want you to write Jesus of Nazareth. Look at that name next to those other three names. And then, if you are willing, write down your own name. This is the way through. Jesus stands next to them. No matter how far off they are. And Jesus stands next to you. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. A final time of discussion, reflection. Reflect on the meaning of Jesus' words for you and for the world around you.
Thank you for joining us for a Sunday sermon from Neatart's Friends Church. We hope you'll join us soon for one of our in-person worship gatherings. For more information, hop on over to neatartsfriends.org. God's peace be with you, friends.